come on a journey with a cinephile. Wake up, sucker. We're thieves and we're bad guys. That's exactly what we are. Welcome, listeners, to episode 192 of Journey with a Cinephile, a horror movie podcast. As always, I'm your tour guide here of David Garrett Jr., recording out of Columbus, Ohio. And on this episode here for you is going to be my Traverse of the Threes, number 14. As the two featured reviews are kind of uh, not the same exact type of creature, but they're both kind of creature feature, you could say a creature feature double feature. And this one is going to be featuring Unwelcome. That is my 2023 release. Technically came out last year, getting its wide release this year. You know how that goes. But I'm going to pair that up with The Return of the Vampire. This is a Bell Lugosi joint from 1943. And then for mini reviews for you, my Traverse of the Threes is going to be The Satanic Rites of Dracula. I haven't seen that for some time, so I gave that a rewatch. also gave a rewatch to Infinity Pool. And then I have some summer series prep with Carry On Screaming, Django Kill, If You Live, Shoot, the Diabolical Dr. Z, and then I also am going to be doing some Dario Argento stuff. I'll get into a little bit of that during the mini-reviews, but I got to see in the theater The Bird with the Crystal Plumage as a rewatch as well. So I don't think there's anything else I need to get you up to speed with here then for this intro, so I will say is thank you so much for listening, and I hope you enjoy coming on this journey with me. Journey with a Cinephile. And for my first mini-review is going to be my Traverse of the Threes movie, which is going to be The Satanic Rites of Dracula. This is from 1973. Directed by Alan Gibson. This was written by Don Hoekton. This stars Christopher Lee, Peter Cushing, and Michael Coles. This is a horror film that's from the United Kingdom. It is currently sitting on a 5.5 on IMDb and a 2.8 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being. In the 1970s, Scotland Yard believed... It had uncovered a case of vampirism. They call in a veteran vampire researcher, Professor Lorimer Van Helsing, who is Cushing, who is a descendant of Dr. Abraham Van Helsing. So that synopsis is a bit misleading, but I'm not going to harp on it too much. But this is one of the later Hammer horror films that I watched. This is in line with the Dracula movies, of course. I'll be honest though, coming in, I didn't remember a lot about it. It was decided since it was a movie that I've seen before and was going to just do a rewatch here for my Traverse of the Threes. And 
I should preface that I'm a big person on continuity, and this one actually seen because this one follows Dracula AD 1972, I believe that's the one, and it's been a while since I've seen that movie and like the Dracula series from beginning till its completion, but. For different ones, I've jumped in, watched it, and I'm not completely up on the continuity straight through. What I will say is that this one does reference that previous one, and it doesn't violate anything that I remember, and it fits right in, so big fan for that. What makes this one interesting as well is it has a modern setting. It feels like this is bringing in a bit of the satanic panic that would be popular in the next decade. There's a reference to the Hellfire Club, which was supposed to be a group of powerful people that would get together, worship Satan, and use influence in the government or other kind of like higher up things. I love this idea. It's a conspiracy theory that is still relevant. And in the framework for this movie, I'm a fan. This isn't the first time that Hammer used an idea like this with Dracula and his return either. The new along with that, I'm a fan of bringing Dracula into the modern era. There have been times after this that don't work so well. It's quite intelligent and I like what we get here. He is a dark figure in the shadows and the police don't know who he is or what he's doing or like, you know, who is behind things. Professor Van Helsing doesn't say anything at first until he can be sure. should say Dracula in this is Christopher Lee. And all of this kind of makes sense what they're doing. I'm also glad that we're getting a couple of descendants of Dracula as a nemesis with Lorimer and then Jessica should say that she is portrayed by, this is the, she's supposed to be the granddaughter of Van Helsing in this one and she is portrayed by Joanna Lumley. It doesn't have to be anything fancy so I commend Hammer for what they used. Now, not everything for the story works. There are good elements and a good setup. I just wanted more in the end. This almost feels like they're borrowing from James Bond and the villains he would go against. A member of the cult is making a deadlier strain of the bubonic plague, one that even a touch can almost kill you instantly. This feels a bit much, especially at the reveal of what Dracula's plan is here. There could be more investigation or more just havoc in the end. It just feels like they ran out of ideas of where to go and it goes abrupt. This is classic though for Hammer in my opinion as it feels like a hangover from the Universal Classics that they were remaking. Again, commending them for doing something a bit different though. So let's go over to the acting then. Lee is good here once again as Dracula. The problem that I have is that he's on screen for like less than 10 minutes. He commands your attention when he's there. He just doesn't do enough to get in my opinion. And a lot of this is just bad writing I think from he was kind of disenfranchised by this point with working with Hammer in this as this character. But I think Cushing carries this more. He's great here as well. Lumley is good as the granddaughter. I also thought that Michael Coles and William Franklin were good as these police officers who are investigating what is happening. I also thought that Barbara Yu Ying, who is Chin Yang, she's kind of like the leader of the cult. I thought everybody there was good as well. We get a handful of new brides for Dracula in this. They look good and were solid vampires. I thought the acting was just solid in general. All that's left to be the filmmaking. I thought the cinematography was solid. It doesn't do anything to necessarily stand out. I like the set pieces that of this isolated house where the cult gets together and do their rituals. It is a bit high tech, but with the influence they have, it makes sense. I thought the effects were solid. Vampires look good. The blood that we get is solid as well. Climax gets wild, which is good. Other than that, I thought the soundtrack fit for what was needed. So in conclusion, this is a Hammer Dracula film that is trying to do something a bit different. I appreciate it. There seems to be influence from spy films that were getting more popular. Acting here helps. I think Cushing is great. Lee needs more time on screen, but we saw what we get. The rest of the cast was good. This is well made. It doesn't do anything necessarily stand out, though. What we do get, though, is entertaining, and that I, I can appreciate. There is even an element of conspiracy theory here that is relevant to today. 
So my rating here for, the Satanic Rites of Dracula is going to be a 7 out of 10. And if what I said here sounds good, you should give this one a watch. And for my next mini review is going to be a rewatch that I did of Infinity Pool. This is from here in 2023. This was written and directed by Brandon Cronenberg. This stars Alexander Sarsgaard, Mia Goth, and Cleopatra Coleman. This is a crime horror mystery sci-fi thriller film that is a co-production between Canada, Croatia, and Hungary. This is sitting on a 6.1 on IMDb and a 3.2 on Letterboxd with a synopsis being James and M. Foster are enjoying an all-inclusive beach vacation in the fictional island of La Tolka when a fatal accident exposes the resort's perverse subculture of hedonistic tourism, reckless violence, and surreal horrors. So this is a movie that I actually watched earlier this year. So if you'd like to hear a featured review for this one, I'm going to have to direct you to episode 170, which featured this as a featured review, as I was saying, with Kathy's Curse, which was Woman Appreciation number seven. The big reason there was that Infinity Pool, I'm kind of honoring Mia Goth here. We also have a strong character in Cleopatra Coleman, but that was kind of the reason I selected it there. And then, of course, Kathy Curse has, you know, a mother and as well as a daughter that are the main characters but anyways to get back to this one here i gave this a rewatch because i left the theater scratching my head a bit as to what we were getting here and i'm actually glad that i gave this one a rewatch as it really solidified some of the things that i was thinking and it gave me a better appreciation for this movie i still don't necessarily know if this is the i think i like possessor better from cronenberg i think this is probably one of his better made movies i mean really only has three but this is better made than antiviral i still think i might like that one a bit better with what it's trying to do as this one just feels a bit more polished but this is one though that i've been hearing people either love or others not so much i think there's some good things here the acting is great i mean sarsgaard as well as goth are just top notch the other people kind of just push everybody else where they need to the underlying issues here are also quite relevant, especially with having these rich people coming to this island nation and kind of just using it as their playground and not really taking the consequences from it. And I think that's something we kind of see in the news where people go to a different country, not understand their rules and you'll get into trouble. This looks great. It runs a bit too long. I also don't know if it sticks to landing completely. I'm still positive though. And as I was saying, Cronenberg is three for three for me. And this one just kind of solidified itself after the second watch. And I think it might be, as I said, his best made movie. I'm not sure if I like it as, as well as his other two, as I was saying. That's not to say this isn't a good one, though. So I actually still really enjoy this one. Unless we get a flurry to end this year, I think this is going to still be in my top 10. As I gave Infinity Pool, once again, an 8 out of 10. And for my next mini review is going to be Carry On Screaming. This is from 1966, directed by Gerald Thomas, written by Talbot Rothwell. This is starring Kenneth Williams, Jim Dale, and Harry H. Corbett. This is a comedy horror film that is from the United Kingdom. It is currently sitting on a 6.8 on IMDb and a 3.3 on Letterboxd with our synopsis being the sinister Dr. Watt has an evil scheme going on. He's kidnapped beautiful young women and turning them into mannequins to sell to local stores. So it's a movie that I found when searching for horror movies from 1966. And this popped up on both the IMDb and the Letterbox page as one of the higher rated ones. So I added it onto a potential list of summer series picks, you know, just in case. And other than that, I came into this one blind. So what I didn't realize, though, is that I'm going to go a little bit lighter on the recap because this could be on the summer series. 
nobody said anything just kind of you know just in case but this kind of feels like parts of series like things you'd get with like old mother riley the pink panther or like the Ernest movies so you don't necessarily get continuity between the movies but there still is that built-in audience i'd even say it's more of like the former or like the Ernest films in those series where they dip their toe into the horror genre at least once and i mean in the most minimal way so i could also say this is a loose remake of mystery of the wax museum with what the evil Dr. Orlando Watt, portrayed by Kenneth Williams, is doing, along with his sister of Valeria Watt. And then there's also Oddbod and Oddbod Jr. These two are like Neanderthal-type people that were found and then revived, and the Oddbod is Tom Clegg, and then Oddbod Jr. is Billy Cornelius. So you could even also say that we're getting a bit of like mad scientist vibes here with dr watt there's a change into a wolf like monster like a werewolf almost plus the two odd bods they're not created from body parts but they lumber around like frankenstein's monster you also have the beautiful valeria who is enticing these men when they show up to her place so there's a little bit of that there's even an angle where i should also say some of the characters here since i realized i just didn't do that until just now is we have Albert Potter, who's portrayed by Jim Dale. He's out necking with his girlfriend of Doris Mann, portrayed by Angela Douglas. She gets kidnapped, so then he goes to the police. There's Detective Sergeant Sidney Bung, portrayed by Corbett. He gets involved here along with Detective Constable Slobotham, portrayed by Peter Butterworth. We also have some other characters. And then there's also Emily, who is married to Sidney. She is portrayed by Joan Sims. There's just interesting angles here that kind of create hilarity. Sydney's thought, like, she thinks that Sydney's cheating on her. Goes into some odd little bits there and whatnot. But this one is one of those weird movies where you're kind of getting, it's more comedy than horror. This is carried by the acting, though. I think Williams is good as our evil mad scientist. I love that he's a genius yet simple with things, and that's done with some wordplay there. I think him, Fielding, Clegg, Cornelius are good as our villains, the latter two out of circumstance more than anything. I do like the play on the sexuality of Fielding as she can use that to get what she wants. Dale is solid as this guy who is determined to find out what is happening to Doris. Corbett and Butterworth are good as our two police officers who are bumbling. I also would say that Charles Hawtrey, Sims, Douglas, Bernard, Breeslaw, and the rest of the cast around the software was needed. I'd also say this is a well-made movie. We, the sets feel like that. But when we have like Sydney's apartment where stuff goes down, there's a police station, a shop that we keep coming back to that has a mannequin, the Watts estate, they all work. I think the makeup effects on like Oddbod and the werewolf creature, those are good. We don't get to see the transformations on screen, but I'm fine there. Other than that, I think the soundtrack fit for what was needed. So in conclusion, this is a fun comedy with horror elements. It is carried through by wordplay and a bit of slapstick. Special credit to Williams, Dale, Corbett, Fielding, and Butterworth there. The look of the monsters and creatures are good. There are some bright spots with the filmmaking there. There aren't issues with like the other elements. It's just not the greatest. I mean, it's, it's a comedy, so you also have that. Not one that I can recommend to everybody, but if you like the Carry On series of movies, and I'd say watch this one, for horror fans, only if you like comedies that kind of fall into this, not a bad watch by any stretch. So I'm not going to give my rating, not one I'm necessarily going to pick though either, but I did enjoy my time with Carry On Screaming. And up next is another potential summer series pick, and that is Django Kill, If You Live, Shoot, goes by the original title of Sisai Vivo Spara. This is from 1967. It was directed by Giulio Questi, who also helped write this with Franco 
Arcali and Benedito Benediti. And then this comes from the idea by Maria del Carmen Martinez Ramon. But this stars Tomas Milian, Marilu Tolo, and Piero Luli. This is a horror western film that is a co-production between Italy and Spain. It is currently sitting on a 6.3 on IMDb and a 3.3 on Letterboxd with a synopsis being various factions including a half-breed bandit, a gang of homosexual cowboys, and a priest feud over stolen gold in a surreal town. So, first thing is that synopsis isn't great. We do have different factions fighting over stolen gold, but I don't know if the descriptions of our players are actually what really matches here, but I'm going to digress. And But anyways, this is a movie that I found when searching the IMDb for the highest rated horror films from 1967. It is a potential pick for the Summer Challenge series, of course, and it's interesting that Letterboxd doesn't list this in genre, and I just kind of figured that I would watch this to determine from there, and I actually do not think this is a horror movie. I'm actually going to delve into that a little bit more here is that I didn't hate my time here. It's an interesting, violent spaghetti western and underseeps some genre for me. But we have some despicable characters and we get some gory stuff at the climax. And then this goes into dark aspects and we have horrible characters, but I wouldn't say that it was enough to go into horror. What I mean there is that there are three characters who I think are good people and the rest are just kind of shades of gray. So this has a simple story. We have a massacre of, I'm assuming, Union soldiers right after the Civil War, and they had some gold and it was taken, but it was stolen by Oaks, who's portrayed by Luli. And then he double-crosses Django and the Mexicans that helped them. And then there are some pretty racist people in his group, but they end up going to this town where they're attacked by three characters are kind of leading them, but the whole town is after. And that would be, like, Sorrow, portrayed by Roberto Camrodel dial something like that then we also have reverend alderman portrayed by francisco sands and then bill templar portrayed by milo quisada now each one of these guys have their own different reasons why they're going after the gold and they're also doing some horrible things here like sorrow has this army of gunslingers that work for him i'm not really sure why they're called gay in the synopsis but they just all seem to be wearing the same outfit, and they work for this guy, so that's about the extent that I got there. Templar's a saloon owner who has higher aspirations. He's been shacking up with Flory, who is portrayed by Tolo. Now, she gives him bad advice, and he also has a son who is Evan Templar, portrayed by Ray Lovelock. And we also have Alderman, who is a minister. He's married to a woman that he has locked up. Her name's Elizabeth, portrayed by Patrizia Valtori. And then, so these guys, none of, there's no honor among these thieves here, as they all kind of keep double-crossing each other. The only good people, I would say, is, like, Django, but he goes by The Stranger here, so I don't even actually think this should have been a Django movie from what I was reading, but that is Milian. And then, I mean, he also, the problem with him is that he's part of that massacre to steal the gold, but then I would say Elizabeth and Evan are the only ones who are actually probably good, but, I mean, I think the acting here is solid. I think Milian is good as our nameless hero. He keeps to himself and only fights back when provoked. I think that Luli, Quesada, Camera Dale, and Sands are all good as these greedy guys who will do whatever it takes to get this gold. Tulu is also a vic villain of sorts. Other than that, I thought Lovelock, Volturi, the henchmen, gang members, and the rest of the town were good for what was needed. As for you know filmmaking here, I think this has some good cinematography. 
this is a said it's a surreal town in the synopsis. I don't necessarily know about that, but it does feel like an isolated old west town where it's dangerous to live there and at any time vigilante justice could be served. That adds a scary element. We get good effects though. They get brutal at times, which I wasn't expecting, so that was good. Soundtrack worked well enough. So I just think this is a solid western with dark elements. Not enough to truly be horror in my opinion. I'm still including it due to IMDb having it listed. We have a simple story that is driven by greed. The acting fits the characters. It kept me interested to see the different things that were being done and try to end up to see who would get this gold. Solid little film. I'd recommend it to fans of spaghetti westerns for sure. Not necessarily for horror fans though. So I'm not going to give my rating for this movie, but I enjoyed my time here and would definitely recommend it. And another potential one for summer series is The Diabolical Dr. Z. This goes by the original title of Miss Muerte. This is from 1966. It was directed by Jesus Franco, who also wrote this with Jean-Claude Carrier. This stars Estella Blaine, Mabel Carr, and Howard Vernon. This is a horror sci-fi film that is a co-production between Spain and France. Currently sitting on a 6.6 on IMDb and a... 3.5 on Letterboxd, with our synopsis here being, Woman seeks to avenge her father's death by using a local dancer with long, poisonous fingernails to do her bidding. So, bit of funny story here. I picked this up on DVD years ago. It would have been when I was working my way through the horror list of movies starting with A. This is a loose sequel to the awful Dr. Orloff. Now, when I was compiling my list of movies to watch for 66, this title came up. I was struggling to find it and didn't necessarily want to rent it. Now, something told me to check my list of movies that I own, and that gave me a reason to move this one up. So, where I want to start is that I had some preconceived notions coming in. I saw Franco's name attached and figured this was going to be sleazy. It doesn't seem like that part of his career has started yet, and he did some good things with a smaller budget here and crafted an interesting story. So, this is a simple revenge tale with elements of the mad scientist. Now, in the beginning, I'm assuming that it's going to be Dr. Zimmer, who is portrayed by... Antonio Jimenez Escribano, but technically it's actually his daughter Irma portrayed by Carr. Now, she is mad and it's a little bit misguided, but they have this machine that they're able to brainwash people with. And it's kind of interesting is that they also use it to brainwash Hans Bergen, who was portrayed by Guy Maris. Now, he was a criminal who escaped and ended up on their doorstep, but then the dancer is Nadia, portrayed by Blaine, and that's who does most of the stuff here, working in conjunction with Hans. But this actually kind of feels a little bit like the Abominable Dr. Fives or like Jigsaw from the Saw franchise could have borrowed from this, as we have a killer who's thinking steps ahead of those that are trying to stop her, and I appreciate that. So then the revenge plot here is a little bit misguided as I was kind of alluding to is that Dr. Zimmer dies when he wants to start doing human experiments with some of the stuff that he has already started. Feels like vibes of a clockwork orange with that, but he kind of gets laughed at and told to not. And then he ends up like dying of like a heart attack. Now we do know that he was sickly before he came in there. So his daughter is trying to get revenge, even though the... The doctors aren't to blame for what happened to him, but she needs to blame somebody. So I like the depth of our villain there, and it kind of feels a bit of ahead of its time. I also think that the acting here is pretty solid. Blaine is attractive and works in her role. She's a dancer who was brainwashed 
to be in a weapon. She can flirt with the doctors and get close and spring before they know what is happening. I feel bad for her since she can't control what she's doing. Thought Carr was good as our villainous mad scientist. I love seeing how crazy she is. She plays that well. And then I'd also say Fernando Montes, who portrays Philip, is another good character here. This almost feels like a Gialli since he isn't a police officer, but he's working with the investigation. I think that Vernon, along with Marcelo Oriati Huagai, I don't know how to say that name. As well as, there's one other doctor here, Chris Huerta. I think they're all good as the doctors who are being targeted. Maurice is good as this henchman. Escrabano is good as the late Dr. Zimmer. I thought the rest of the cast were on the top role was needed. There's some really creepy music in here. That's something with the filmmaking I wanted to give credit to. I thought the rest of the selections were fine. I also think the cinematography here is decent. They don't really do anything to stand out there, but I like the locations that Irma and her crew use. We don't get a lot in the way of effects. Isn't that type of movie? It's also kind of early into cinema, but one that I rather enjoyed. I was expecting a bit different seeing Franco's name, but this didn't disappoint. We have a mad scientist seeking revenge. It is misguided, which makes sense. I thought the acting was good. This is a well-made movie with the soundtrack being the bright spot there. Not one that I can recommend to everybody, as it doesn't do a lot to stand out, aside from the historical things that I've kind of picked up on my opinion. I really do need to make sure, though, that this should be getting the credit there. I'd say that this era is cinema. This is one that I would say, if you want to give this foreign film a watch, give it a go. So I'm not going to do a rating here either, but this is another one that I would definitely recommend as well. Then my last review for a movie before I do a little bit of my television stuff is going to be some Argento. There's actually going to be quite a bit coming up because of me going to a... They're doing something at a local theater here, so I'm going to get to see a bunch of his stuff on the big screen, so keep an eye out for that. But the first one was The Bird with the Crystal Plumage. This goes by the original title of El Luciolo Dalla Piumi di Cristallo. This is from 1970. It was written and directed by Dario Argento. It is loosely based on the book by Frederick Brown. I believe it's called like The Screaming Mimi or something along those lines. But this one is a horror mystery thriller film that is a co-production between italy and west germany it is currently sitting on a 7.1 on imdb and a 3.7 on letterbox with a synopsis being an american expirate in rome sees an attempted murder he learns that he's connected to an ongoing murder spree in the city and decides to do his own investigation despite being personally targeted by the killer so this is an interesting one. I think this might have been the second ever Argento film that I had saw. I believe my first was Suspiria, and then I believe this one was next that I checked out. But this would have been an early foray into the Italian subgenre of Gialli. I've you know seen this one a handful of times. Actually, one of my most seen Argento films, probably. I know once was for the T-Puts Collective with Where to Begin with Giallo. I've seen this twice in the theater now, once at the Gateway Film Center, and then this time here for at the Wexner Center for the Arts. So then, I've already kind of shared this before, I believe, is that Argento's a name that popped up for me growing up because he helped out with the original Dawn of the Dead, and then I also watched Demons a lot, but this was his first solo-directed film, and even early in his career, you can see why he was considered a master of Italian horror. This film blends the great mystery of the Giallo film with horror. So I want to start is that I originally had issues that our main character of Sam, who's portrayed by... I actually didn't even realize I didn't say this, but this was starring Tony Musanti, Susie Kendall, and Enrico Maria Salarno. But as I was saying, Sam, who is portrayed by Musanti, I don't necessarily think he would actually be collaborating with the police because he's just a writer. 
An element is that Inspector Morsini, who is portrayed by Salerno, believes that he knows something more that he is not telling them. This is a classic Argento trope where a character needs to remember something important that could help break the case. And the police are desperate. There have already been three murders, and then there's a fourth after Sam is pulled in to help investigate. But this is more of a trope for the Gialli here is you can either just buy it or, you know, can't make a pass with it. And, you know, being more versed, I rolled with it there. Now, something that builds tension here is the killer knows that Sam is onto them. They try to scare him off with a former boxer, but then they also come after Julia, who is portrayed by Kendall. Now, this is Sam's girlfriend. But despite what is going on, Sam is determined to discover who is doing this. I like how they build the mystery and things that seem like dead ends, but then it does lead to the next bit of information needed to solve this case. And then having a handful of times now, you know, having watched this, even knowing how it ends, I still go along for the ride. I now look for the bigger picture and kind of confirm that there aren't really cheats here because we kind of see a crime going on in the beginning, and I personally think this is crafted well. Then to finish out my thoughts of the story, the mystery of who the killer was, I thought it was, it works. I know from my first watch, I thought I figured it out at one point, and then there were a couple twists that made me enjoy this film even more and question things. But after multiple viewings and others in the subgenre, I don't think they do as much with the red herrings as they could, but what we get makes sense. So let me go over then to the acting. In general, I thought it was good. I wasn't blown away by anybody, but that's not an issue. I liked Musanti here as our unlikely guy who was trying to solve the case. I think Kendall is gorgeous. I'm a fan of hers, so that makes me a bit biased. I do like that she gets upset and worried about Sam while he ignores it. Salerno is good as our inspector, which is kind of interesting here as he's not a bumbling cop, so that's a little bit something that would become more popular later in the subgenre. Then I would also say that... He comes off as rude, but we kind of warms to Sam and they have a friendship that felt real. Then we also have Ava Renzi and Berto Rojo. There is Giuseppe Castellano, Renato Romano, and the rest of the cast kind of worked for what was needed. So all that's left would be filmmaking. I'm first going to give credit to the cinematography. This is a constant through all of Argento's films. He just knows how to frame a shot, even early in his career, to build tension. It gives us information that we need. thought the effects in this one were solid. They go a little bit lighter here, but the realism was there. I also think that the soundtrack was good. We have some stuff by Ennio Morricone. And I actually think I saw Bruno Nicolai's name in the credits as well. But there's some choices here that are eerie-sounding songs that are creepy. Helps build that with what they're kind of going for for the atmosphere it sounds like somebody breathing at times and there's some odd sounds that make it scarier pulling in like going back actually to how this was shot the images that are shown are great with the music it gives such a different feel to the scene we also have some close-ups that add tension during one of the murder sequences it focuses on an open mouth and like a tongue and then coupling with some quick takes it gets the adrenaline of fear going there for sure in conclusion, I like this one. Argento did a great job in his solo directorial debut, and you can see the potential to make films that would follow this up. The acting is good. The story is solid. And I like the twist that we have to end it all. Soundtrack adds something to the tension and the vibe. And it comes with your normal tropes that you see in Gialli. I will warn you that this is from the 70s, and it's dubbed. So if you know what they're kind of doing in Italy, and this is kind of the standard of that time. But this is one of my favorite films from this master of horror. So my rating for The Bird with the Crystal Plumage is an 8.5 out of 10. And I got to watch quite a bit of some Walking Dead type stuff. And I'm going to start with The Walking Dead, Dead Cities. I did get to watch the first episode over there. And this is 
the episode's called Old Acquaintances is the first one. This is directed by Yorin Iaconelli. This was written between Robert Kirkman, Tony Moore, and Charlie Adler. This stars Jeffrey D. Morgan, Lauren Cohen, and Gaius Charles. And the synopsis here is Maggie finds Negan and they travel to Manhattan, meeting a quiet young girl named Ginny, a marshal named Armstrong follows Negan. So this one, the kind of the setup here is that Hilltop was attacked by a crazy ex-savior. Now we get to meet him by the end of this episode and he's actually played pretty brilliantly by Zelichuko Ivanek. I've seen him in a few things, but he's known as the Crow. Now... Maggie's son of Herschel is taken, and he's portrayed by Logan Kim, and she seeks out Negan, who is portrayed by Jeffrey Dean Morgan, and the reason that Maggie seeks him out is that he does the whistle that Negan used to do, so there's an agreement that is struck where Ginny, who is portrayed by Mahina Napoleon, now Negan is kind of taking care of her, never actually says what happens to Negan's wife and daughter, and Ginny is an orphan from kind of what they relay is that she saw something bad happen to her father and she's been a mute since. But they're going to, like I said, Manhattan. And then there's a marshal that is after Negan, portrayed by Pearlie Armstrong. And, well, his name is Pearlie Armstrong. He's portrayed by Charles. And he kind of goes out there. And we have Yano, portrayed by Trey Santiago Hudson. He is taken a bit of hostage here by Negan and Maggie as they head in. And then... This kind of gets an interesting look that Manhattan's been sealed off. Some weird things have been starting to happen in the city and everything like that. So this new show is kind of interesting. Kind of curious to see where they're going to go with it and to see what wild stuff they're going to have in here. I actually gave this episode a 7.5 out of 10. It has me intrigued. I'm going to keep watching, but I haven't been able to watch the next episodes. There's actually a few of them out, I believe, but I've been actually kind of catch up on Tales from the Walking Dead, which is where I'll go now. And then the first episode that I watched for this one is going to be Blair and Gina. This one is directed by Michael E. Strazemus, written between Kirkman, Moore, and Adler. This stars Parker Posey, Jillian Bell, and Kevin L. Johnson. And this one is in a fast-paced, reality-twisting, buddy-action heist. A disgruntled receptionist and her overbearing boss are trapped together as the city of Atlanta collapses under the Walker apocalypse, forcing them to work together in order to escape the city. So this one, we start off, they work in an insurance company, and they're hoping that this whole ordeal is going to get them more money. Now, Gina is the employee to Blair, and that's Posey and Bell, where Bell is the employee. And everybody's kind of nervous, and there's gas and food shortages. We have this weird where Gina pulls a shotgun and then from her trunk, and there's like an agent from Homeland Security who is portrayed by Amir Baraka. He is Leo Rogers is the name of his character. And then this ends up being like a Groundhog's Day thing where they're trying to figure out what they need to do, and time keeps coming back. Where, like, Gina will blow up the truck and it kills everybody. She'll steal the truck. Blair gets involved. And then we have, like, Wendell, who is a son to Leo. He gets involved. And they keep just kind of going through everything. Now, Blair and Gina are aware of everything that's happening. We're trying to figure out what kind of the answer is here for this one. I thought this was kind of an interesting little thing to play on for the Tales of the Walking Dead. But I didn't love it. I gave it a 6 out of 10. And now, one that I really like, though, is D. This would be the next episode, and this was directed by Strazemus. It was written between Kirkman, Moore, Adler, and then we have Samantha Morton, Lauren Glazier, and Scarlett Bloom. 
Now, this one is a mother evolves after she and her daughter escape violence to take refuge on a vintage steamboat. The peace ambiance deteriorates when a coup attempt forces the mother to revisit her violent past in order to protect her child. So this one, we're actually going into the past here where we have D, who will end up being Alpha. And then we have like her daughter of Lydia. Now, D is portrayed by Morton, Lydia portrayed by Bloom. And they're living on this houseboat and Brooke seems to be not as interested in this guy that she wakes up with. That's how the episode starts. But then we actually kind of learn about these characters and there's like a charade of sorts. You know, the world has ended and everybody kind of just looks down upon D and we see how Lydia is being jaded with the safety of, you know, being on this houseboat. And we actually kind of see how like their relationship was kind of rocky even from the beginning. And we see what kind of happens as this coup happens on there. Billy kind of plays a big part of this. He's portrayed by Nick Basta. I really like kind of seeing the beginnings of this one and kind of how Alpha ends up with the whispers and everything like that. So that was kind of an interesting little thing there. I gave that episode an 8 out of 10. And then the last thing I'm going to have for mini reviews here and everything like that is going to be another episode, and that is Amy and Dr. Everett. This one is directed by Haifa L. Monsour. This was Kirkman Moore and Adler are the writers. This one stars Anthony Edwards, Poppy Liu, and Jonathan B. Martin. Now, this one, in a nature documentary set in the dead sector, a naturalist who studies walkers encounters a spirited settler. An unlikely respect is forged between the two as a settler tries to argue in favor of people taking back the land from the dead. So this one, Anthony Edwards is Dr. Charles Everett. He's isolated by this trench in this thing called the Dead Sector. He is researching the walkers and calls them Homo Mortis, you know, kind of like Homo Erectus type thing. And then we have Amy Zhang who gets in and she is portrayed by Liu. Now, he protects her, but he's following the Specimen 21 and we get to learn a little history there. We learn about these people called Skull Hunters who are... They go around killing walkers and they like obviously clean the skulls and everything like that. So this one is kind of an interesting little story. He's trying to learn more about it. He kind of figures out that there are they are herding type people and everything like that. And she wants to kind of settle here. He kind of softens a little bit. This one actually has a very bleak ending where everything ends up. I rather enjoyed this one in kind of how we're learning a little bit more about them. It doesn't do a whole lot really outside of that though, but I end up giving this one a 6 out of 10. So what I'm going to go ahead and do, don't think there's anything else I need to do here, so let me get you over to the trailer of my first featured review. We've been gifted this beautiful house. We live here. Can you believe it? Maeve wanted to keep the place in your family, Jamie. We really appreciate the house. Well, then you know. It's got a hole in the roof. The Whelan's, they'll do a good job. Jamie, Maya, you just carry on with your day as if we weren't here. There is one thing I need to show you, and it's a little bit peculiar. Every evening before sunset, she'd leave a blood offering here. Sorry, did you say blood? For who? For the red cats. No need feeding. You'll be hungry. Can I get in my own house, please? You own it, dear. How many times have the English come to this country and told us what's theirs is now theirs? They need to know their place. Tim! Hey, 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 h
What did you leave out tonight? Oh, shoot. You can't miss a single day. Hello? Is anyone there? I can't be scared. Not in my own house. Don't leave your missus alone with the lads. For my first featured review here this week is going to be Unwelcome. This is from 2022, but it's got its wide release here this year on Shudder. And this was directed by John Wright, who also co-wrote this with Mark Stay. This stars Hannah, John Kamen, Douglas Booth, and Klam Meany. And this also is featuring Christian Narn, Chris Wally, Niam Cusack, Finbar Lynch, Rick Warden, Lolar Roddy, Paul Blackwell, Kasky Brown, Mark DeVoe, Jean Evans, Sarah Madigan, Ania Marson, Jamie Lee O'Donnell, Mark Stay is actually in this, and then we also have Bradley Turner. This is a horror film that is from a co-production of the United Kingdom and Ireland. Good to see them getting along. And this is sitting on a 5.1 on IMDb and a 2.7 on Letterboxd with our synopsis being Married couple Maya, who is portrayed by John Kamen and Jamie portrayed by Booth, escape their urban nightmare to the tranquility of rural Ireland only to discover malevolent and murderous creatures lurking in the gnarled ancient wood at the foot of their garden. So now for this one here, this is a movie that I heard about when a buddy of mine of Derek showed me a picture that he had bought it. I hadn't heard of this one, but I investigated it and it sounded interesting. I decided that since there wasn't a new release coming to my theater, that I would watch this as a 2023 release here as a featured review. So then before I get into the movie itself, let me do some featured notes on some of these people and I'll start with our director of right. He has helmed four films. I've only ever seen this one. He has three in genre though. First was something called Tormented, which I had not heard of, but I have heard of his other one of Grabbers, which is on my short list of things to see that it's, you know, getting quite long, so I don't know how short it actually is anymore, but I will watch this one eventually. And this is obviously the only one that I've seen. So as a writer, he has three. I've only ever seen this one again. He has a different one here that he wrote, which was Beyond the Rave, which looked kind of be like a vampire film, but I had not heard of that one. Now, he seems to work with his co-writer here of Stay, who has two films. I've only ever seen this one, and this is his only one in horror. And I think they did, like, a sci-fi film together. So, you know, just not this, but anyways. Then over to our cast. First, I'll start with John Kamen. She has been in 15 things, and I've only ever seen six. I've seen her in Star Wars The Force Awakens, Ant-Man and the Wasp, Ready Player One, and the Tomb Raider remake. She's been in two horror films, this and Resident Evil Welcome to Raccoon City, which I have now seen both of these. Then to her co-star of Booth, he has been in 24 movies, I've seen two. Out of horror, I've seen him in Noah. Now he has three in horror, which are first was Pride, Prejudice, and Zombies. And then he was also in the Limehouse Golem, which I believe that movie was being advertised when I was in London. I have not seen it, but it's one that I do want to get to eventually. 
And then I'll also look at O'Donnell, who has eight works. I've only ever seen her in this, and this is the only one that she's been in in horror. Now, I'm also going to look at Meanie, only because he's been in 114 films. I've only actually seen him in seven, which shocked me. I've seen Die Hard 2, Die Harder, Con Air, The Last of the Mohicans, and Law Abiding Citizen. Now, he's done four in horror. First was Caved In, The Devil's Hand, and The Secrets of Emily Blair. I have not heard of any of these, so the only thing in horror that I've seen would be him being in this one here. So then, to get into the movie here, let me flesh out a bit more from the synopsis. Now, Maya and Jamie are at the start of trying to get pregnant. Now, they live in the city in an apartment. Now, she takes a test and it's positive. They're excited beyond belief, so Jamie goes to the store that is just outside of their gate and has a run-in with some hoods. They follow him back up to his apartment, break in, and attack them. Now, they survive this ordeal. It is from here that we get the opening credits and we see an old woman dead on the grass outside of an old house. This turns out to be Mauve, portrayed by Jean Evans, who is Jamie's aunt. In her will, she left him the house. The couple decides to move there after what they went through. Now, they end up meeting with Naima Cusack, who greets them. She actually, her character is the same first name, and gives them the lay of the land. It is through the discussion to learn that Mauve's life was filled with tragedy. Jamie remembers the good times when he would come to visit. Now, his aunt kept her to herself, and she was superstitious. Every day, she would put out an offering to the Far Daring, which... I didn't realize what these were, but the movie actually explains it, which I thought was cool. And Jamie asks if they're like leprechauns, to which he's corrected. The other names for these mythical creatures are red caps because of the outfits they wear or goblins. Naima offers to come every day to continue this tradition as she claims to have seen them once. This makes Maya uncomfortable with what happened in the city, and she promises that she will keep the tradition going. Now, our couple goes about getting acclimated to living in the country. There is a hole in their roof that Mauve just seemed to be living with. This couple is expecting and want it fixed. No one is available to start immediately except the Waylands. Now, the father is Klom, who is portrayed by Meanie, who insists on being called Daddy. He has a large son who is a bit slow by the name of Owen, portrayed by Narn. I know they have another son here who is a bit of a country hood himself, of Killian, portrayed by Walling. And then the daughter of Asling, portrayed by O'Donnell. Now, they start immediately, but they're just not great at what they do for work. They have trouble staying focused, and they also have some sticky fingers, and their work isn't great as well. Now, things get to you know be set into motion here in that Maya forgets to put something out that first night. This upsets Naima. A drunk who makes inappropriate comments at the pub for their like welcoming kind of party of Rory, portrayed by Roddy, disappears that night. Now, Maya explores the woods that are behind the door to the in the garden, and it's eerily beautiful. She finds a stone structure as well as Rory's dog of Molly. Now, these creatures living out here might be real. They might also help this young couple, but at what price? So that's why I'm going to leave my recap introduction to the characters. Where I want to start is that this movie wasn't necessarily what I was expecting. Looking at the poster, I thought this would be a bit cheesy, which... It's spot on in points, and it isn't so much with the creatures, though, but more that there is some comedy that is interjected here from Jamie, and with how bad the job that the Waylands are doing. Outside of that, the tone is serious, and it goes dark with the latter as we get into this movie. So I'll give credit as well. This made me uncomfortable. So I think I'm going to shift as to why. The opening sequence with these hoods attacking the mini home invasion segment is kind of what I refer to it as. It was a joyous moment knowing that Maya is pregnant. She and Jamie are happy. 
Then they're being attacked, and I went into a panic about the unborn baby. It is early on, though, so it doesn't affect the pregnancy. I'll admit, I'm bringing personal baggage here. The end of my wife's, of Jamie's pregnancy was stressful, so seeing them potentially lose the baby was upsetting. This event changes them. Now, Jamie in the movie is a funny guy. He is still is in their, you know, move to the country, but he also harbors anger as well for failing to protect Maya, and I felt that. When there are issues with the Waylands, that upsets him. Maya doesn't like the man that he's become or is kind of becoming when he's pushed like this. So then keeping with what I brought up about home invasion and that idea is this becomes a variation on something like straw dogs. The Waylands aren't poor, but they're also lower middle class or I guess upper low class. Essling and Killian have a chip on their shoulders and they don't like this couple because they're from the city and being I think from London as well. So this makes them not like Maya and Jamie. They steal when they can, and at the climax, they're looking for their brother of Owen, and they know this couple knows something. They attack the house since they're locked out. It is by then that we know that the creatures are living in the forest, and they come to the aid of the couple, but this is where I was saying is that it comes at a price. So I'm not going to spoil what happens there. What I like is that Maya and even a bit of Jamie learn about the ant through Naima, and it is about the superstitions of the red caps. I like that they're doing here is that these creatures, I don't know a lot about them, but we get to learn things and there are elements of like a changeling with something that happened previously to Mauve and it leads through Maya is like heartbreaking with what happens here and then the difficult decision that must be made. It almost, you know, makes things right, you could say in a way. Now, since I don't want to spoil it, next we'll be going over to the acting. The two leads of John Kamen and Booth are good. They play well off each other, and I like that they feel like a couple. What is interesting is that we get a baseline about their world as it's being turned upside down. There are changes that come over them, both good and bad, and it also allows them to handle the situation as things go on. It then has our characters that are challenged or pushed into different ways. I'd also say that Meanie, Narn, Wally, and O'Donnell are this country versions of the hoods that we saw back in the city. Now Cusack wants to help them and keep them safe. I'd say the rest of the village is similar as well. Now where I'm going to go then before I do some trivia, I think there's only one bit there, but it's going to be filmmaking. Now the first thing is going to be the effects. While I was watching, I was debating whether I thought this was CGI or practical effects. I've come to learn that it's mostly the latter. There are some forced perspectives and larger sets to stimulate this, and the look of the goblins is great. Now, they also have their own language, which is a variation on English. This also gets violent with how they kill. They're smaller, but the surprise and that element helps them to kill. Now, credit as well to the cinematography. Outside of that, the soundtrack fits for what was needed, and the voices of the monsters works in their favor there as well. So then, the bit for the trivia here is going to be... The superbly crafted red cap goblins were not puppets. They were played by actors Paul Warren, Rick Warden, and stunt performers, all wearing costumes and practical goblin heads. According to the director Wright, they were shot on double-sized sets, which gives the illusion of people who are half-size. Rather than use animatronics to animate the heads, they added CGI motion capture faces. It's stuff like that that makes me appreciate this one even more. So in conclusion, this one wasn't what I was expecting in a good way. This has good character development of our leads, and it also deals with relevant subject matter like trauma and its effect on people. The acting helps this to work as well. John Kamen and Booth are good as our leads, with the rest of the cast pushing them to where they end up. This is well made. Special credit to the effects being better than what I was expecting. Not a great movie, but I don't mean that as a slight. 
as I think it's effective. I'd recommend this to horror fans for sure. It gets a bit cheesy, but in the best ways in my opinion. So my rating here for Unwelcome is going to be a 7.5 out of 10. I don't really necessarily think there's anything that I want to go into then for trip or for, I mean, spoilers. So let me get you over to the trailer of my second featured review. second featured review is going to be The Return of the Vampire. This is from 1943, directed by Lou Landers. This was written by Griffin J, and it looks like Randall Faye did some additional dialogue and based upon the idea by Kurt Newman. This one stars Bela Lugosi, Frida Enzacourt, and Nina Falk, and while also having Roland Varno, Miles Mander, Matt Willis, Ada Tola Nesmith, Gilbert Emery, Leslie Dennison, William Austin, Janine Bates, Billy Bevan, Sidney Chatton, Shirley Collier, Frank Dawson, Harold D. Becker, Donald DeWar, and Jean Fenwick. This is a drama horror film that is from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 6.1 on IMDb and a 3.1 on Letterboxd. With our synopsis being, when an errant bomb unearths the coffin of a vampire during the London Blitz, a gravedigger unknowingly reanimates the monster by removing the stake from his heart. So this is a movie that I learned about through when searching for horror from 1943. It's also featured in the encyclopedia that I'm working through, and that is the horror show guide, the ultimate fright fest of movies. And I'll actually read the blurb from that here in just a little bit, but I was intrigued to see that Bela Lugosi starred in this one, as it's another one that I, from him that I could tick off the list. The title also caught my attention. I wasn't sure that this... I didn't know if this was going to be a sequel or not. And I'll actually come back to this as I think it's a play on something and marketing to pull people into the seats. And I actually think there's some trivia about this as well. And actually, why don't I just go ahead and get over to that because I actually read this before getting into the movie itself and everything like that. But there's actually more trivia, but we'll get into that keep saying but anyways columbia pictures originally intended this film as a direct sequel to dracula from 31 but when universal threatened a plagiarism suit columbia went ahead and made the film anyway but changed the names of the characters to avoid any connection with dracula it also held back its release for two months as to not compete with lon cheney jr's son of dracula from 43 kind of an interesting little thing to happen there so before i get into the movie any more than that let me do some featured notes on some of the key people here and i'll start with our director of landers he directed 134 films i've only ever seen three and they're all his most popular in horror he did four i've seen the raven from 35 the boogeyman will get you and now this i have not seen terrified from 1963 though 
Then to the writers, I'll start with Newman. He wrote 10. I've only ever seen this one. He did two in horror with this and She-Devil from 57. I've not heard of this other one, though. Uh, the other writer is Jay, and this is where things kind of get interesting, is he worked for Universal. And he's done 21. I've seen three. I've seen The Mummy's Hand and The Mummy's Tomb, which along with this one as well i have not seen captive wild woman yet i think this is from the same year and it's on my list i'm trying to find a way to see it but he has done as well the mummy's ghost cry of the werewolf and devil bat's daughter i've not seen any of those moving to our cast i'll start with lugosi i've now seen 32 of his 140 for 22 percent and then in horror i'm at 30 of 61 for 49 percent over to his co-star of Falk. she has been in 76 movies i've seen three not in horror is Spartacus and the Ten Commandments. This is her first in genre. She did five others with Cry the Werewolf, an episode of Wide World Mystery, Jennifer, and a couple of documentaries, I believe actually on vampires. And then to Varno, I've seen two of his 38 works. Not in horror, I've seen the film Gunga Din, which I believe is a war movie. This is his first in horror. He was in Scared to Death and the Mad Magician, which I've not seen either of these. I also wanted to go over Ensa Court since she has a big part in this movie. She was in 49 films and I've seen two. Not in horror, I've seen A Place in the Sun. Her first in horror was this, followed by The She-Creature and Alligator People. So then, let's get into this movie, and it's an interesting vampire film. We don't see the monster's face, but we start in 1918 in a cemetery outside of London. A werewolf is strolling through it, and... This ends up being a servant to the master. Now, the vampire is Armand Tesla, portrayed by Lugosi. This will come back into play later, but his servant is Andreas Obrey, portrayed by Willis. He tells the status of a woman that's in a hospital that the vampire has been feeding on. Now, Dr. Walter Saunders, who is portrayed by Emery, believes it's vampires. The creature is defeated and buried in the cemetery in an unmarked grave. He actually works with a Lady Jane Ansley portrayed by Ensacourt, and she'll come back into play later as well. So then this shifts to the present, which is going to be in World War II. I found this to be intriguing since there's daily bombing runs, and one of them hits a cemetery. The grave of Armand is found, and the stake is removed from the chest so they can rebury him. This allows the monster to return to life. An issue also is here that Dr. Saunders has passed away between the events that we saw and now in a plane crash. Now, there's attacks around the area again, and Andreas is still here, and he's cured thanks to Lady Jane Ansley. That is until Armand shows up. He brings out the darkness within him and makes him once again a slave. Armand then starts to attack new victims, one of which is once again Nikki Saunders, portrayed by Falk. Now, she was attacked years ago when her father discovered what was happening. So there's another wrinkle here. Sir Frederick Fleet, portrayed by Mander from Scotland Yard, is looking into the case of what happened and potentially charging Lady Jane with the murder. She consults her son of John, portrayed by Varno. He's engaged to marry Nikki, so he is worried when she falls into being unwell. To make things easier, Armand poses a doctor that is coming to the hospital, and none of the personnel there have ever seen this doctor. And what I mean easier here is this gives him access to victims. So it's a matter of time before these start to pile up and attacks from war are happening. Armand has a way of covering his tracks that is quite different. So that's really my recap introduction to the characters. Where I want to start is that I did have a reference to a recap to give of mine. You know, as I was saying, I was exhausted the night that I tried to watch this. And that's not to say that it was bad. I just think that there's some interesting things and it's using current events of the time to add up as well. There were just finer details that I was missing and needed some help putting together. Just so you're aware. 
So I want to start is that I was alluding to earlier that about this being an unofficial sequel to Dracula originally, or just another film that Lugosi was going to have, he was going to do when he was, you know, as a vampire. I think that he was cast as a creature due to being in Dracula. He has a great screen presence as the monster. The return in this movie is actually alluding to the fact that he was stalking this area, was defeated, and now is back. I don't know if that was in the original screenplay or just something they kind of wrote in there to avoid the issues, but I thought it was a creative way to kind of play with some things. Even more so is because of the research that is done in the second part of the film. Armand was the writer of the article about vampires. There's a picture of him which helps as a reveal since I don't know if we actually got to see his face at that point because everything in the beginning he is held to shadows or we're seeing him off screen. Thought it was kind of a cool thing to play with there. Now, since I brought up the monster, let me go into the lore of both the vampire and the werewolf for this movie. For the former, they use normal things. Stake to the heart to defeat it. Stalks around at night. The one that I noticed being different is that Armand doesn't need to be invited in. Another thing is that if the stake is removed and the vampire can return. I don't hate this as it feels like something Hammer would use in their run that would come into a couple play decades later. Now for the werewolf, what is interesting here is the moon doesn't seem to have any effect on seeing him change. It seems like when the evil takes over, Andreas changes. He is a servant to the master. I'd also say that it seems, you know, closer to being like a familiar. This is my knowledge is the first to use this creature for this. But it might be something used in a Universal Classic that I don't really recall. But I do know, like, they've had crossover films. But, you know, using it in this capacity is different in my, from what I can remember offhand. Now, the last bit of the story is the fact that Lady Jane could be charged with murder for what happened to Armand. This is a concept that strikes me when watching movies like this. Armand is a established person. I'm not sure if Frederick investigated the fact that he made his findings on vampires well before his murder. But to the point is that he would be much older than he looked. This adds interesting tension that they need to prove to Frederick that they aren't killing a person but a creature of the night. So that should be enough. Let's go over to the acting. I've already said about Lugosi being good as this villain. He just has a look about him that works for a vampire and he has this per piercing stare. They don't give him as much to work with, but I think he's still good. Ensicourt works as his doctor who has a link between the past events and what is happening currently. I like that. Falk seems to be somebody who needs to be saved before it is too late. I liked Varno in his role. Mander works to help raise tension as things get pushed and need to be solved before it's too late. Willis works as this monster that finds humanity and then struggled is pulled into question. I like how this character works in the framework of the conclusion as well. Other than that, I thought the rest of the cast rounded us off for what was needed. So all that's left for this part of the review is going to be filmmaking, and I like the cinematography here. The use of the graveyard is an interesting setting. The looming war can be felt here, so that helps with the depressing nature. There are destroyed buildings due to bombing runs, and I think that adds an interesting element that we don't normally see. The effects are good. They are practical due to the era, the best being the look of the Wolfman here. That was top-notch in my opinion, and we don't get much aside from that. And I'd also say the soundtrack fit for what was needed. So then the blurb that I was referring to earlier, let me go ahead and read that before I do some trivia. And the Columbia Studio attempts to recreate the successful Universal formula, whipping together several elements in a lumpy, half-baked loaf. The story begins in 1918 with the vampire Armand Tesla being guarded by a werewolf. Flash forward to the London Blitz of World War II, where Tesla is resurrected and goes after the family who stalked him years before. The wolf transformation effects aren't much, and Lugosi's first return to the role of a vampire after Dracula is a bit of a letdown. 
He has some very smooth scenes and interjected flashes during the wartime setting as a distraction. So is a werewolf angle as why we have this hairy faced fellow always wandering around with a brown paper packages. The basic problem is a silly script. Sample dialogue. Poor Andreas. What a tragedy to lose his soul again. I kind of see what they're saying here, but it is what it is. So let me get over to some more of that trivia that I've been alluding to a couple different times here. Lugosi was paid $3,500 for his four weeks of work. According to the films of Bella Lugosi, Columbia grossed about $500K from this on an investment of $75,000. The action of the prologue takes place beginning around October 15th of 1918, while the balance of the film takes place in late summer, early autumn of 40, according to the Regent Hall concert program shown. Lugosi filmed the Columbia feature August 21st to September of 43, Prior to his final two monogram films, this would be the last time he received top billing for a major Hollywood studio. BBFC weren't happy with the camera shot of Armand Tesla melting under the rays of the sun. This particular scene was censored before it was released in Britain. The original idea of this film was created by German-born director Newman. However, it was directed by a very prolific B-specialist, Landers, who had another half-dozen films in the release that year. Jesus. Scenes of this were used in the 82 video clip, The Number of the Beast of UK heavy metal band Iron Maiden. The Columbia Goer Studios were rather cramped, so the production was moved to Fine Art Studios for the cemetery sequence. The final lines of dialogue spoken by the police inspector as he breaks the fourth wall to ask the audience if they believe in vampires. A clip is shown in the pilot for cult series Dark Knight 92 as a vampire cop, Nick Knight, is watching on a flat screen TV, unusual for 92 at home. When the coroner walks in and makes a snide reference to Lugosi, giving him several tips on being a vampire, Willis's makeup was reused by Columbia makeup man Clay Campbell on Stephen Rich for the werewolf from 56. The book of that is shown in the movie itself is a supernatural as manifestations by Tesla. There's a whole lot of stuff I'm not going to read there. The bombing of Great Britain was part of the German war effort during World War II known as the Blitz. During the Battle of Britain from... 40 to 42, more than 40,000 civilians were killed by the German Luftwaffe bombings. Almost half of them in London were more than a million homes were destroyed or damaged. This is one of the first vampire films to actually show how the vampire kind of dissolves or dies on camera. The first being Nosferatu from 1922. Kind of interesting there. So in conclusion, this is an interesting early vampire film. I like that it's borrowing lore that is classic and then doing things that are a bit different with it. I wouldn't be shocked to see Universal and Hammer borrowing things from this, as well as things even today. The acting is good. I thought Lugosi was great. I wanted to give special credit to Ensacore, Falk, and Willis in his bright spots as well. Not a bad performance, though. This is a well-made one, in my opinion, even though it's kind of lower budget. The look of the werewolf being something else to give credit to. Not one that I can recommend to everybody, but you need to be a fan of early cinema, and I think this one does things a bit differently, and that makes it more interesting. So my rating here for The Return of the Vampire is going to be a 7.5 out of 10. Now, I'm not going to do a spoiler section for this one either, so what I'm going to go ahead and do is get you over to one last break before I close out the show. I would like to welcome you back, and then just to close everything out here, if you'd like to send me an email with any sort of feedback or anything that you'd like to have right on the show, you can send me that email at journeywithacinephile at gmail.com. If there's anything that you send me you don't want right on the show, just let me know in that email. If you'd like to read any of the reviews from anything on this episode or any of the past episodes, that's horrorreview.webnode.com. If you'd like to become friends with me on Facebook, I'm David Mishkin Garrett Jr. 
On Twitter, I'm Buckeye from Mish. Letterboxd, I'm David OSU. And over there, I'll be posting all of the reviews of anything that I'm watching that is horror or non-horror alike. If you'd like to follow my Instagram page, that's David OSU87. If you'd like to follow the Journey with a Cinephile Instagram, that's Journey with a Cinephile, all one word. What I will be posting over there is on both of them the movie posters of anything that I am reviewing. And if you follow my personal one, every now and then you might see some personal pictures if I ever post any because I tend to forget while I'm out and about. And just to make it easier on you, I'll have all of those links in the show notes. And then the last thing I'd ask you to do is that whatever podcatching device you're listening to me on, if you could go ahead and hit subscribe so you never miss a new episode, that would be greatly appreciated. Also, if you're able to rate and review just so I can figure out what I'm doing that you like and what I'm doing that you don't like, as well as to get out to more listeners out there as well. And for my next episode is going to be another of my Traverse of the Threes episodes as of one, I think the two I'm going to delve into here. I, if I can make it to the theater, I don't think I'm going to be able to. I would like to try to watch the new Insidious movie, but if that's not the case, I'm going to just end up biting the bullet and watching the new Children of the Corn movie. Don't have the highest hopes for it as that series kind of fell off the rails pretty quickly on it. I mean, I don't even love the original one, but it's one of those things where there's a new one out. I am trying to complete all the movies from that series. I'm a completionist, thanks to Letterboxd especially, but... I will get off of that there, but I'm going to be watching another Bella Lugosi film as well as there is the Ape Man, I believe that's what it's called, is the one from 1943. I'll also have some more Dario Argento films. I will get in a Traverse of the Threes. I believe it's actually Scream, Blackula Scream. I haven't watched that one for quite some time. I'll do a rewatch. I believe it's A Spoonful of Sugar is going to be a rewatch I'm going to do as well. And then on top of that, I'll do some more summer series prep on top of that. Not necessarily sure what we're going on over there, but I still want to be prepared if that comes back around. So don't think there's anything else I need to say here is I will say thank you so much for listening and whatever you do today. I hope you're safe and doing it. Have a great time out there. This is your tour guide of David Garrett Jr. And I am signing off. It had been a wonderful evening. And what I needed now to give it the perfect ending 